Okay, uh, in uh, our study, we had uh, reached the point where, uh, in studying Luke, that we had got to the uh, 21st chapter of Luke and was about ready to go into the event dealing with the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. But uh, when I was thinking about this, that's, this is where we had planned on, on going, of the diversity of the nature here. Some of you are here for the first time uh, in several weeks. Some of you have not been here. And whereas those that have been coming regular, we have been building up to this particular point. And so I think it would be better to not go into this for that reason and to go into something that would be uh, more maybe interesting to everybody in, in looking at it from a one-night standpoint. Uh, uh, is that okay with everybody? And so I'll pick something that will stand on its own merits for one night, no matter how far we get. And we'll try not to go two hours, Tim. Oh, uh, 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 man, I, I sleep here, I sleep here. <laughs> oh, man. If, if you promise not to sing for two hours, then I promise not to. Okay, turn over to um, Matthew. The, uh, to the Sermon on the Mount, <coughs> the uh, fifth chapter, and uh, beginning with verse 13. Uh, Ian, uh, one of the things that has happened in the United States today, and by the way, if you don't already know this and are, are suspected, then you should, and that is that what you know as traditional Christianity, and that is Christianity that's based um, on the Bible um, by people who actually believe in the Scriptures, uh, is really on the demise in the United States. And that for some time now, yeah, we make up, those of us who believe the scriptures and who believe in uh, Jesus as the Son of God, we make up a smaller and smaller percentage of the population of this country. Uh, churches, uh, uh, those that feel good and think they're doing a lot uh, and feel that Christianity is growing, they, they do so because they've either been misled or they're not using stats in a right way. For example, that uh, a lot of your city churches that are growing, are doing so because of rural people that move in and place their membership there, and there's a lot of competition going on for these people as they move in. Uh, in rural areas, people are, are moving out. Uh, a lot of the conversion, most of the conversion that takes place, now I'm not talking about the exceptional church, but I'm talking about churches as a whole. Most of the conversions that take place are taking place with just the children of members or maybe a mate or some other member of the family. But so far as the church as a whole reaching into the world and actually converting people who do not already have a background in Christianity, little to none is actually being done in our society. And so the end result is that we've reached the point, and the last place I read this stat was in the, one of the, a publication that comes out once a month called the Christian Chronicle, and that is, whereas at the turn of the century, fundamentalist Christians 
we're said to represent about 41% of the population in the United States. Now, if you were talking about those that would profess belief in Jesus, you could get up there to about 85 to 90%. But uh, by fundamentalists, they mean those that actually believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Right now, we're down to 31% of the population, and it's continuing to go down. And so although we may be going up in number, as a percentage of the population, we're actually going down. Well, you, you can see that if you live in a democracy where the majority rules, that as the percentage goes down, what's going to happen to Christianity and its influence in our society? It's going to go down, right? That means that there's going to be fewer and fewer congressmen, fewer and fewer judges, uh, fewer and fewer of every type of people, textbook writers, broadcasters, whoever, a smaller and smaller percentage that are operating from a, a Christian background. So it's a, it's a really important thing uh, from the standpoint of, of if you are a Christian and if you, are if you already believe in this and you have a, have a desire to see the country evangelized and Christianity progress. All right, on the other side of the coin, it's just the opposite in uh, third world countries. Uh, in, in Africa, for example, uh, Christianity has gone from 2% of the population at the turn of the century to about 10 to 12% of the population now. And that's the total population of the continent, and it's, it's growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, this is true in India, it's true in China, it's true behind the iron, what used to be the Iron Curtain. In all these areas uh, where Christianity has been held back by the different governing forces, it is growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, it's interesting, and in the parts of the world, like Western Europe and the United States, that has reaped all the benefits of a Christian population, it's on the demise. So in areas that are pagan, it's on the increase. Uh, in areas like the United States and Western Europe, where you have so many Christians and there's so much money and so many churches, it is actually on the demise and is having less and less influence uh, on the society as a whole. Now, anybody want to offer any opinion before we get into this here as to how this could possibly be the case? How could you live in a society where Christians are so numerous as in the United States? If this is true about Christianity, and yet it be on the demise, and yet on the other hand, in societies that are actually pagan, and Christianity, Christians make up a very small percentage, it's actually growing by leaps and bounds. We've obviously got a lot of lukewarm Christians that are uh, just born in pews or something. Okay, one suggestion, you're saying one, one uh, theory that you would offer is there's a possibility we have a lot of lukewarm Christians in areas where it's uh, strong, right? In, in areas where the church is strong, but yeah, we're not increasing. Okay. Now, contrast that. Uh, in a society where Christianity is not dominant, is there any, uh, is there any uh, reason for becoming a Christian separate from a strong belief in it? No, you're not. You're, obviously, if it's not a popular thing, you're probably probably taking a difficult step, something that's going to separate you from your family and the people around you. It's sort of like Willie and Donna making that choice when they come from China. It's like the ignorant people are, you know, okay. are going to be uh, Christians. You know, if you're 
Okay, we had a, I was, uh, about two weeks ago, I guess it was, or maybe three, I was talking with a man, he was, uh, uh, I met him over at school, I just bought a copier from that company, and of course I noticed his English was very weak and he was from somewhere in the Middle East, so I got in a discussion with him and we got into religion, and then I had him stop by the, he, we come by the house together and I, I talked with him a while, but he's from Iran, and he was converted to Christianity, and his conversion cost him his entire family in Iran, and he's living in this country now. He's been here 17 years, but he's not a citizen, and he is a marked person. If he goes back to Iran, he'll be killed. And that it's obviously, I didn't have to ask him how strong he believes. You know, he may, you may think he's off, or I may do on some individual doctrine. You don't give up all of that without a strong conviction. So what happens is, the, on the observation that Tim made, in societies where Christianity is not the norm, and it's not the popular thing to be, what you find is that when people do become Christians, they tend to be converted. Okay? Well, then the result is, they also tend, despite all persecution, uh, to be very mission-minded. All right, now contrast that with the first century. Isn't that the way that it was in the first century? Who was brought up as a Christian? You know, it sure wasn't Peter and Andrew, was it, or James and John, or Paul? Uh, they were all antagonistic towards the, uh, the the. In other words, the concept of the Messiah, the kingdom, and all that Jesus taught was really foreign to what they had been taught. They had been taught a lot of wrong things. And so nobody became a Christian unless they were 100% converted by the evidences. In other words, you wouldn't have found somebody in the first century that didn't know the evidences as to why he believed. That's all he stood on, what was the evidences. Okay, now, well, what about this, this country? Uh, in Western Europe and the United States, uh, are, do we have people that uh, would be called... Uh, cultural Christians? Anybody want to take a shot at that, what a cultural Christian is? Uh, I'll give you two examples of cultural Christians. I went to Oakland Park, and where we're going to church now, and immediately two real estate agents hit me at the door. It's a great place for contacts, a very transit area. You go to a church for 800, you get a lot of contacts. When they found out that I wasn't going to buy a house, I was just going to rent. I've not talked to those two people since then. Those are to me are examples of, uh, you know, it's to their advantage to be there at that church in the transit area where a lot of mid-level managers are. And it's, uh... What about Nashville? Could it be advantageous to be a member of the Church of Christ in Nashville? You think it could be advantageous to be a Catholic in Rome? I would think definitely. If you was, in, if you was a businessman, you was in Salt Lake City, what would you want to be? You see? All right, here's what I'm saying is this. It's inevitable. What we're talking about is actually inevitable, and that's why there will always be a, a, a growing and then a purging and then a growing again. Anytime a particular religion, and we're, we're dealing with Christianity, becomes dominant in a society, then it actually becomes advantageous to be a part of that group from a standpoint of business contacts, 
jobs. I mean, even from the standpoint of being a, a school teacher, uh, anybody that's into the public school system knows that there's, there's politics involved. And so, uh, after all, if you've got a school board member that's a member of the church here, or the superintendent is a member of the church, or whoever it is, that's obviously going to help you somewhat. I'm not saying that, that all these people, obviously, I make my living in the secular world too, but what I'm saying is there are reasons for being a, a Christian in name in a church in the, in the United States and in Western Europe, there has been in the past, that uh, have nothing to do with Christianity. All right. Also, you have a certain amount of young people that are brought up, and we all know you guys are young and you just went through those teen years. In most churches, after you pass 12, isn't there a certain amount of pressure on you to, to be baptized? I mean, there's a, isn't it there? A certain amount of, I mean, in most of the churches, and by the way, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, with trying, obviously we need to, but what I'm saying is the end result is that if a child is operating in an environment where a lot of people, the parents, the preacher, and friends, and everybody, you know, they're wanting them to be baptized and all, then you're going to have a certain percentage that are baptized that may or may not uh, be converted. Okay, now, what we have in cultural Christians, by the way, I was talking to this uh, ex-Muslim, the uh, man from Iran, and they have, in, in countries like Saudi Arabia, they have cultural Muslims, too. They're there because it is, it's the majority thing. He said that, uh, that there may be any number that are into that who really are not devout and, and Muslims who believe the Koran and things of, things of that nature. But all groups have that. Okay, now, we have this kind of thing, and one theory then of, of answering what is happening, because by the way, it is a real fact. We can, we can talk about why, but it's a real fact that Christianity is on the demise right now. Now, the assumption of our lesson tonight is that everybody here is a believer. Uh, personally, I don't believe anybody should believe without evidence. Uh, I have no confidence in anybody's belief unless they have examined the evidence and they literally know why they believe and, and they can articulate it. I don't believe anybody should, uh, should buy a car unless they've got some evidence that the thing runs. And, and I don't believe that you should buy into Christianity unless uh, you have some evidence that, that's strong and, and saying that it is the truth. Okay, what we're going to look at here is, is something that society should see, and I really believe if this were here, that you could see a difference in any society, and I believe if what we're talking about here takes place, that even though we have cultural Christianity to a great extent in our country, that anywhere you have an individual congregation that is willing to do what Jesus is talking about here, that at least in that immediate area that you can have true Christianity and you can begin to make an impact in the world. In fact, uh, another thing I think that uh, your people that are ripe unto harvest out there right now, I'm talking about right now in our society, the people that we would say be, would be ripe unto harvest, we have a lot of people out there that believe very strongly in God and who have a lot of respect for the Bible, but are not in an organized church. And so then the question becomes, why not? We've got two things here that were two opposites. On the one hand, we have some cultural Christians. 
and we and the that are there for whatever reason, without being fully uh, converted. Uh, any speaker, Brian, sure to know you've had the opportunity of speaking, and and people out there that have been baptized are laughing and cutting up and joking all the time. You're talking, well, obviously that person's not converted. You know, I mean that, that's that's a joke uh, to say that uh, you can laugh and cut up while you're attempting to worship the Creator of the universe if you really truly uh, believe. So on the one hand, there is the cultural Christian, but then on the other hand, we have in our own society thousands and thousands of people who strongly believe in God, who do believe in Jesus, and who believe in the Scriptures, and who have left organized religion. And yet they strongly believe. Any, uh, any suggestions or opinions as to how that could happen? And see, the bad thing is that although they have that belief, they're not able, because of their lack of organization and cohesiveness and things of this nature, they're not able to make an impact in our society in keeping with their number. Uh, any, any reasons you can think of why that might take place? Run them out because maybe we don't agree with them on something and we just run them out, pressuring them, or they just get fed up with everybody bickering and all the unchristian attitudes that they see in the church even. Okay. What uh, Chuck says that there are good people that we run out, a lot of times bickering. Here you might have a sincere person that's converted to the Lord. He comes to church and they spend all their time arguing about some particular doctrine or there's pressure on you to conform to, to every single solitary doctrine that the elders believe and the preacher believes and that the status quo believes in, in that particular area. Or you have unchristian conduct that becomes repugnant to them. Uh, I've got a man right now that is uh, teaching for me. I just just hired him this year to uh, teach the uh, seven. Well, he's teaching sixth through eighth grade math for me. But he's worshiping in his home, and he and his wife and his children are worshiping in the home. Uh, when he was, I won't name the church, and I have no desire to name him. But he went to Cookville and went through Tennessee Tech. And it was at Cookville where he left the church. This guy's devout. Uh, very, very strong uh, conviction so far as his belief in God. Uh, he's, uh, in fact, uh, he had quit what he was doing, went to a preacher school for a couple of years, and started preaching full time, became discouraged, went back to college to get a degree and earn his, earn his livelihood teaching school. He picked school teaching out because he thought it would allow him more time than other professions in, uh, in promoting Christianity. And while he was there, he became fed up with the church and left it. Uh, well, there's three examples of that in this county of pre former preachers right. that have real good knowledge of the Bible. Right. One man in particular I know, very sincere, and I'm not saying that these people are all right on whatever or anything like that. I'm just saying that there are a people ripe unto harvest out there, that they're, at the same time we have cultural Christians within the church, then on the other hand there are some very devout people uh, who strongly believe and who live lives that are more worthy of Christ than a lot of people in, and yet they're out there, and they're outside, and we, we need to take a look, because maybe if we took an honest look, instead of making excuses or putting them down and all, that 
these could be a people that we could start to build back with. And by the way, when you talk about being ripe to harvest, remember when Jesus was here, before he sent to the pagans and converted, where did they go first? Jews. To the Jews. They were the ones. Jesus spoke of them ripe to harvest. It wasn't the pagans. The Jews had been prepared by the law of Moses. And they were the ones that was ready. And he would create the foundation there. And then he would go to the world. And I suggest to you that the people that are ripe to form a foundation are those people who already have strong beliefs in God. Whatever it is, they may differ or, or not differ on some point, but already have strong belief in God, strong belief in the Bible. And then it is with this nucleus that we can go and begin to, to reach out to others. But anywhere, by the way, in a church, uh, Chuck mentioned the, uh, the various things that people get discouraged on. If a person is really converted, and I mean is really trying to emulate Christ in his life, can you see how that person could have problems uh, in, in some of our churches? I think you could you just be uh, very frustrated, like Jesus throwing out the money changers. Just uh, I can see how you could get very frustrated with uh, uh, people people who are obviously non-Christian, but still you know going there and just uh, putting up the show. Whenever I, we went when we moved to Overland Park, there was uh, several churches that I visited there, and if it wasn't for Christy and the baby being there, I don't know where I'd be going to church because I really. At Overland Park, that's really the way I felt. They were very, uh, seemed very worldly and very concerned with their... Uh... Yeah, you mentioned the damn worldly, Tim. Worldliness is almost not a sin anymore, isn't it? I mean, we... Uh, no, the, the yeah. lessons aren't, aren't about that. The lesson, yeah. I mean, it's not part of, part of the sermon. At least if you are, you're not going to be specific. You may say worldliness... Yeah. But you're not going to pick and you're not going to pick out sins and say these are sins. Right. A good example, I think, of, of the things we're talking about is that uh, uh, separate from things or anything. In fact, uh, some of the better statements I've heard recently have come from people that are not preachers. Uh, uh, I was reading an article where uh, uh, Bill is it? What's his first Curry, the coach of Kentucky football team, is it Bill Curry? Yeah. had written up on the board, you know, uh, the best things in life are not things. And he has an approach to coaching where he, he emphasizes in his own life and to others that number one is God, number two is a family, and, and number three is the football team. Gene Stallings, by the way, of Alabama, has cut a very good tape where he emphasizes that number one is God uh, and then the football team. What I mean, an example of worldliness, you, you go to church, there's nothing wrong with ball games. But when you're there to worship God, and, and we can't even get outside the building before we're all wrapped up on how the Braves are doing or, or the football, how Tennessee is doing or how whoever is doing, and, and you see so much interest and so much enthusiasm there. And then we get into the Bible classes or into the sermon and into the worship, the same kind of thing is not there. Now, keep in mind, I'm not condemning watching the Braves or the baseball, the basketball, I enjoy, anybody knows me knows that I enjoy sports as much as anybody, but I'm saying that something is wrong when for a couple of hours out of the day on Sunday it can't take a back seat to, to worship of God. Well, the same thing is true and many of our services are in many ways a dress-up contest uh, and, a, and in a contest where uh, we discuss all kinds of worldly things and, and a lot of things go on that really are not spiritual.
Okay, look at this right here. And remember as Jesus says this, uh, Jesus is, uh, is spiritually indignant at what he has found uh, when he came to this earth among the Jews. Uh, here were supposed to be a people that were prepared for the Messiah, and they were to lead the world to him, and yet the vast majority of Jews were going to reject him, right? That's interesting. I mean, here they, they were the people ripe unto harvest, and yet the vast majority were going to reject him. And he was constantly calling them back to this calling that they had. And this is, uh, he's talking to the Jews here who are going to go out and take this information to the entire world. Uh, Mark, let's start with you and read that, uh, read that 13 through, uh, through 16, please. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Okay, now, notice when he says, uh, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify the Father. So if, uh, uh, if people know you are a believer in the God of the Bible and in Christ, then there is reflection towards God and Christ to depend on your action. But what, all, what is the reverse of this? If that is true, if they see your good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven, what is also true? See your bad deeds. And then what happens to God? I guess God gets uh, took down. You know, they, that's their impression of God. I guess if you believe in God, and they, they're seeing God through you. Okay. Uh, let me see. I might have the right passage on this. Hold your place there. And uh, I don't know if I... What are you looking for, Dad? Uh, I believe it's Romans uh, 2. Let me see. Romans 2 and verse... Uh, if I've got it. Oh, here it is, Romans 2 and verse 24, where he's getting on the, Paul is talking about the Jews. Look at that statement there. You want to read, that? let's see, you want to read that, Kelly? Verse 24. Uh-huh. As it is written, God's name is blasphemy among the Gentiles because of you. Okay. So, uh, by the way, if you read the history at this time, the, the Gentiles of that day hated, the majority hated the Jews. And he says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you Jews. And so, obviously, Paul's saying that instead of leading people to the true God, uh, God doesn't even have a good name as a result of the way that uh, you're conducting. Now, there was more involved there. In fact, uh, many of those Jews that he's talking about would have stood up for moral principles. But they had a self-righteous attitude about themselves where they actually looked down. It wasn't a matter of believing that such and such was sin. Uh, remember, for example, how disgusted they became with Jesus when he talked with the Samaritan woman. 
or when the woman that had been in adultery touched him and how disgusted they were and don't he, doesn't he know what kind of person this was? Because of the way they conducted themselves, that uh, there was no desire to know, you know, the, the God of Israel. The name was actually blasphemed. Well, if what Jesus is saying is true there in the positive sense, it's also true in the negative. And that is, if, if God's name can be glorified because of the actions of people who claim belief in him, then it can also go the reverse uh, depending on the lives and the actions of people who claim to believe in him. You know, I, won't, I don't want to get off into this, but it makes an interesting study. We often have complained through the years about the countries like communist Russia and Albania and some of these other countries that uh, once the communists took over, the atheists, how that they began to ban religion and they made things tough for the church. And, and we, we think, you know, that that's terrible. But it's interesting when you go back and study the history that before uh, they took, the communists took over, the czars and the Russian Orthodox Church were just like that. And uh, they looked at the Russian Orthodox Church as a political group that propped up the czar. And so the hatred for Christianity was developed because of the Russian Orthodox Church. It's interesting that of all the countries in Western Europe, you want to know which one has the highest crime rate and the most unsuccessful government? Italy. Where 98.9% of them are Roman Catholics. And where religion uh, on the, is actually the least respected. Uh, when cr people profess, look what happened to Christianity because of, for example, Jim and Tammy or Jimmy Swagger. Uh, anytime that kind of thing happens, uh, that it, it is a black in the eye to Christianity. All right, now, Christians then, according to Jesus, what he's trying to get them to know that you are the light of the world. And notice also when he talks about it being a light, could people who are not believers glorify the God that you believe in because of your actions if they did not have some innate ability to identify with that and deep down know it's right? I mean, would that happen? Would people out there who were not believers in the Bible, not believers in God, would they look with favor on the God that you believe in if they did not have some innate ability within them to identify with that and know that it's right? Romans 2.14. Okay. In fact, will you read that, Steve? To be with Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things require the law. They are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciousness, their consciences alternately bearing witness to their thoughts now accusing the identity Okay, so Paul is saying that we're made an image of God. He's dealt with that in the first chapter. And he says that we have a conscience, a sense of all. And he said that even Gentiles who didn't have the written law, based on their own perceptions, actually became aware of a lot of the morality and believed it. And so much so that their conscience would excuse them or, or not excuse them before God. If people, if this were not the case... Who would ever say, in other words, any time an individual out here says so-and-so is a good person, what are they really saying about themselves? 
here is maybe a crook. And he says, that is a good person. Does he say that about a fellow crook? No, he, he uh, uses standards, Christian standards, really. Okay. Standards that God has put forth in his heart, I guess, to judge that person. Okay, he has obviously the ability that when it comes to this thing of honesty, uh, respect for other people, fairness, justice, unselfishness, these are qualities that stand out in any society, among any color, among any gender, and that people find themselves inwardly attracted to it, no matter what they may be, that there is an inward attraction to that. They're made in the image of God, and they're attracted to that in the same way that the physical body might be attracted to, to water or to food. And so Jesus is telling them that a it's really important when it comes to the advertisement of his cause and the promotion of his cause that they be a light in the society that they live in. All right, now look at the verse 13 where it says you're the salt of the earth. Now we uh, think of salt from a flavor standpoint, but how was salt thought of in the ancient world? Preservation. Okay, yeah. All right, preserving uh, the word salary comes from the word salt. Salt was so valuable and so scarce in the ancient world that many times people were paid in salt, and therefore our word salary comes from it. Uh, the Roman army sometimes paid their soldiers in salt. That's how rare it was. It was not used like we do, throwing it all over the food, you know, that they, uh, they couldn't afford it. It was used to preserve, and it was the number one preservative that they had. And so anybody in the ancient world, when he thought of salt, he thought of it as a preserving quality that without salt, meat will rot, you know, that we can put salt on it and we can preserve it and keep it a long time. So with this frame in their mind, that salt is something that preserves food. And, that's, and if it doesn't preserve, notice, if it doesn't preserve, from their standpoint, it was good for nothing. You see, they weren't interested in just throwing a salt shaker or something. If it didn't preserve in, in the first century, it was good for nothing. And so Jesus is saying that, that his people are to be the salt of the earth, the, the preservation of the earth. And if it loses its ability to preserve, it's good for nothing. All right, notice now, then after talking about it being the preserving quality of the earth, he then says it's to be a light on the hill and that uh, people are to see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. And it's interesting because when we think of influencing our society today, we think mostly in terms of politics. You know, uh, uh, special uh, situations and, and we, get our, we get our man in and we really fight to get our man or or we go to the abortion clinic and we circle it and lay down and all that good stuff, you know, and that's the way we think about promoting Christianity so many times in our society. Uh, or, or we stand up and call the homosexuals faggots or whatever, you know, and, and, and write certain things in there. But when Jesus gave, sent this out, this is not a democracy. This is pagan Rome. And in this pagan world, Christians were going to represent God simply by the way they lived their own lives. And as they lived their own lives, 
as husband and wife and as parents, as slave masters and as slaves, as employers and employees, as they lived their lives, they would show the rightness of God's way. Other people would look at it and be impressed and say, hey, this way obviously works. It would be attractive to them. In the same way that when, when you meet somebody out here and they have these, these characteristics, why is it, by the way, that when you meet certain people, you say, I like them, and you meet certain other people, and you say, I don't like them, don't you? If you meet an individual and you become acquainted, and they may be, we, we put all this emphasis on, on looks, for example. Here's an individual, ugly as a mud fence. But they're unselfish, kind, courteous, in tune to the needs of others, fair, just, honest. Okay, here's somebody that looks like, who's the good looker today, anyway? You know, my day it was Marilyn Monroe. I don't even know who they are now. Brian, that's why I'm Brian, But whoever is, I don't even know the, whoever's supposed to be the good looker today. But anyway... That here we got our good looker, but they're they're selfish. Pamphlets in everybody's home all we want to, and we can pay for sermons to be preached on TV, and we can build these fancy buildings and dress up in our suits and, and go to them. But in the final analysis, the very people we're trying to reach out there are made in the image of God, and the greatest advertisement that God has is when His plan is. Uh, his plan for life is put into force in, in them as, as human beings. And so he tells them that they are the light of the society, and as they did this, that others would come to see certain things about God. When I hold your place there and flip back over here to Deuteronomy 4, and notice this is really one of the things that God wanted uh, from the Israelites. Deuteronomy 4, and beginning with verse um, 5. Let's see. Uh, 5 through 8. You want to read that, Tim? Yeah. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has uh, God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason, we may call upon him. Now what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Okay, Paul's there. Now look at what he's saying as he gives them the law. He said, I've taught you decrees, laws. You may follow them. Uh, verse 6, observe them carefully. And notice what will happen. This will show your wisdom and your understanding to the nations. They'll hear about these. And they'll say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord God is near us? Okay, what other nation is great to have such righteous decrees and laws? Okay, so there is the assumption there that those pagan nations who do not yet know the true God will inwardly identify with this law. And so he says, observe it. But notice now, 
he goes on, look at verse 9, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen and let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children. So he was concerned, and see, as, as he talks about the things that their eyes had seen, they have just been led out of Egypt, and they've witnessed all the miracles, and they've been given the Ten Commandments, and all these various things that have happened, and so their faith is based on evidence. But if they put this into practice, they will benefit and others will see, but he's concerned that they won't diligently teach the very things that their faith was founded on to their children and that they will forget. Well, that's exactly really what happened with Israel. They didn't, they took for granted. They didn't teach as they should. Uh, They benefited from the law and then began to take it for granted. And so then we, and we find that throughout the history of Israel, a constant coming to grips with this, benefiting from it, falling away, and then after falling away, realizing what they had lost and given up, and then a coming back uh, to the law itself. But the underlying assumption is that everybody out there has made an image of God, and they really will identify with it, and you don't find this anywhere except in this, in this context. By the way, along with this went the health code in the law of Moses. And he, in the book, none of these disease, diseases was based on that. And he said that if you conduct yourself according to these requirements, you won't have the diseases of the Egyptians and the pagans. Well, they didn't. Uh, if they practiced it, they would not spread among themselves the diseases that the others had. By the way, when you come to our present society and the practice of Christianity, uh, we look at some of the things that's going rampant through our society today, and we've got AIDS. Uh, I know the biggie that, uh, in fact, in the next few weeks, I'm supposed to take a hepatitis B shot. They're they're picking out several of us in uh, in each of the schools, and and hepatitis B, if I understand it correctly, is easier to spread than AIDS. Is that right? Because with AIDS, you need to have contact with blood, but with hepatitis B, just the body fluid is enough, if I understand it correctly. But the interesting thing, these things are just spreading like wildfire through our system. AIDS, hepatitis B, syphilis is on the increase again. And yet, uh, what could stamp out all of it? A little dose of morality. What if people practiced, and see, we're not talking about being, as Christians, being anti-sexual. We're talking about practicing sex in the way that God ordained for it to practice. And, if, and you could simply state to your society, and when you're in conversation with those uh, in your age group, that the practice of sexuality in the way that's set forth in the Bible would literally do away, wouldn't cost a dime, would literally do away with it. Well, there's any number of other things. Our society can't build enough prisons. We're having all kinds of problems in our school. Uh, we, we don't listen to what the Lord says about divorce and marriage. And, and so in our school systems, we're burdened down with uh, little children who come from broken families. And they turn out to be, for the most part, our discipline problems within the school system. All right, suffice it to say, when you look at what Jesus is saying here, when does a light look the brightest? In a dark room or one where there's a lot of light already? dark room that there is a if ever there was an opportunity 
for Christians to allow their light to shine. But what is happening, so many congregations are so concerned about just a number there. How many number we can put on the wall and, and how many services and, and how much money we got that we're willing to compromise. And when we compromise, when it comes to these moral principles, then you also are compromising as to the light that you're going to let out. And keep in mind that there are evidences for the resurrection of Christ that are very impressive, and, and all Christians ought to be aware of them. There's evidences for the inspiration of the Bible, but it's the Christian community and through their lives that's going to determine whether or not anybody's going to even become interested enough uh, to want to hear the evidences for the, the message that we have. And so Jesus, as he prepared his disciples to go into a pagan world, tells them that they are the salt of the earth, that they were the light, and that uh, they were really fit for nothing unless they carried this out. And so then, as you get into the Sermon on the Mount, what does the Sermon on the Mount deal with anyway? I mean, if you just had to sum it up in a few words, what is it dealing with? How to live. How to live your life. That's right. Uh, it's uh, simply living your life and, 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 and the content of, of your own heart. And that's, and that's what Jesus spent most of his time. In fact, when you, if you look at the teaching of Jesus, he's either dealing with something that's designed to produce faith in people, or he's dealing with something on how they live their life. And that's it. Uh, how to produce faith in their heart, uh, the different types of, of evidences, are he's concerned about uh, how they live their life. And this was, and then by doing this, they would be a light in the society that they lived in. Any comments or questions, observations uh, by anybody over what we've talked about? You know, in verse 13, where it said salt. If you look at it maybe this way, you know, salt has a healing power. And it says, for really shall it be salt. And for, could be looked at as Christians, you know, going out to the world, like maybe being a healing power to society. Yeah, same thing. That Right. The, 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 an actual, uh, the, uh, for example, when it comes to, I think, something such as the abortion issue, I really believe that Christians are wrong by getting out there and shouting and hollering and doing the name calling and run around. But what we ought to be doing is simply practicing God's will ourselves. And then these people ought to be counseled and talked with in an attitude of love. We ought to be getting information to them. In other words, get statistics to them uh, about the alternative and the consequences of their lifestyle. And that, that would be the, the reports that if any is going to work, would work. John? I think that's true in general. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But, okay, I'll go there you go. <laughs> um, I think that's true in general. I, I don't, uh, I, I have a, a bunch of uh, non-Christian friends uh, out there, especially at school, going to school in Pittsburgh and everything like that, and uh, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk to them about the way they live their life. In other words, if they're uh, if they're living with their girlfriend or whatever like that, there's no point in me going there and uh, and uh, and saying, "Oh, that's sinful, you horrible person," or something like that. I uh, I think that the only place I'll live my life, and I hope that they see that it works, and it's a good example to them. They know they know how I feel, 
they know how I live. But if I'm going to talk to them, I'm going to talk to them about why I'm a Christian and why I have faith in Jesus. And uh, and uh, I think that's first things first. Yeah, I think um, the statement of Peter, sanctify the Lord in your heart and be ready to give an answer to everyone that asks you of the hope that lies within you. But then he continued on in meekness and in fear, that uh, not in a smart aleck attitude. That I, I think what Steve said is right too. We try to force... Christian morality on people who haven't been converted. And what we ought to be doing is, is being concerned about our own lives and then let them know the evidences and the reasons for your belief in Christ. And it's only after they become convinced of the truthfulness of Christianity that then we get into this, this decision of changing life at that point. But it's kind of an absurd, in fact, try to think of one example in the New Testament where they tried to change the life of somebody who wasn't converted. The, the message was always Christ and a repentance and turning to Christ. And then after the person was converted to Christ, then we have the changing in lives that takes place throughout their life. Uh, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Then teach them all things whatsoever I've commanded you. But after the conversion to Christ, then the change to change their lives throughout the rest of their life. Anybody else with any comments or observations? Barry, Barry and I was, uh, we were walking one day, and we had to walk past this bar. And there were some people that were standing out there, and they were holding up their signs. I said, Jesus came to save sinners, and Jesus is the only way, and he's coming back, and all this. They were just standing there holding a sign in front of the bar, and I made a comment to Barry, I don't see, I just can't picture Christ carrying signs and among the public and the sinners. I just want to get your comment. On yeah, that. I agree with what you're saying. I think to, to stand outside the bar, uh, first of all, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. I don't think anybody knows in a frame of mind for that. But to stand outside with a sign like that and say, you're the chief of sinners, I believe it's a mistake. I think the the way to do, if you as an individual know others who are living that lifestyle, then as, a, as an individual to enter into dialogue with that person and discuss that lifestyle. But even there, I don't think that it, uh, it begins to have any meaning until that person is convinced in their own mind concerning the deity of Christ. You, and, and keep in mind, in our society, you can't go around assuming that people believe the Bible. The majority don't. I mean, they, they honestly don't. They, the majority of the people out there have never read a book on Christian evidences or studied the Bible from that standpoint, so you just simply cannot make that assumption. Now, I believe they do more harm than good, John, the, the, in, in handling it in that way. It's kind of offensive, really. Mm -hmm. It turns people away when they do things like that. Yeah. It offended me, actually, what, what yeah. it's been handled. It's like... Yeah, you want to say, hey, he's not accurately representing us, you know, that that's not, not uh, right. Or the, uh, the hellfire and brimstone preacher who's uh, standing across, and they'll have them on the news, you know, you're going to hell, etc., like, like that, and the same thing. He's really uh, not accurately uh, rep representing Christianity. I mean, it may be wrong, but that's not the approach that is, that is used. Good example is, I remember a guy in Chattanooga a few years back, I forgot his name. Dan or, uh, Martino or something. Right, right. Start, start with an M. Uh, uh, abortion issue, showing them signs of uh, babies that have been in 
boarded, you know, going through Chattanooga and some of these big old posters and stuff. Huh. You know, I, I agree that abortion is wrong, but you know, you got to be careful the way you go about doing things like that. Like they were talking about these people holding these signs up, that turns people away, you know. It gets people offended. Yeah. It comes across. Yeah. It comes across like you're trying to force your will on them when they may disagree with you. And we're not talking about not standing up, but that uh, there's what, just like this here. That's a very good book, and you can stand up by getting information out and circulating it and getting people to study with you without trying to shout somebody down and, and force your way on them. Another area along the, as far as being concerned about the representation of Christianity, all of us need to be concerned about the people that are, that are in our buildings on a regular basis and who obviously do not have their trust in Christ and they're not following him and they're going out there representing Christianity. Uh, like will attract like. If you have a, a church where the emphasis is on morality and godliness and all, you will find that like will attract like. And on the other hand, if, if, if you do not put emphasis on morality and godliness in life and, and set an example for Christianity out there, then you're also going to attract in, in keeping to what you actually put emphasis on. I, I think uh, I see a parallel there. It's like uh, with uh, lukewarm people. Uh, in, in Revelation, we all know the story to the lukewarm church at, at Laodicea, and, and Jesus says he'll spew them out of his, vomit them out of his mouth if they're neither hot nor cold. But uh, I, I see a parallel. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Hoosiers. Or it's a, 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 a true story about a, a basketball team. But uh, the, uh, the coach had players that, that uh, weren't uh, playing according to the, the way he wanted them to play ball. And uh, there was one point in time where he played with four players instead of playing ball with a, a fifth player who, who wasn't going to get with the program. And, of course, they wound up winning the state championship in Indiana. But the, the point I'm just making is that uh, a lot of times a lukewarm person can hold you back a lot more than, I, I don't, you know, that number is not really going to help you there. So. Uh, similar thing, uh, Tim, in education, uh, the... They made a movie on this too. Some guy in Baltimore, black principal of a high school, inner city school. Anybody remember the name of the movie? What was that? Lead on me. Right. Uh, an actual. <laughs> he knew there was uh, something going on there. But right, lead on that. Uh, again, what he did when he went in there is clean house in the sense that he laid down the rules and he enforced it and they expelled a lot of people but they created a school that really brought up their test scores and everything and he was fought tooth and nail in fact he was painted as somebody that was unloving unkind and things of this nature and what you what is happening now in society is that when you stand up for moral principles then you will be painted as somebody that's unloving, unkind, inconsiderate, and things. In fact, the, the liberal thinking is always to paint conservatives as, as people that are not very smart, and they're very hard, and they're unloving and, and unkind. But he turned the school around. And there's been any number of, uh, uh, you could go, who was the sheriff they made a movie on some years back, Walking Tall or something like that? Yeah. Right. Uh, but the same principle that I'm saying that, that 
what has been shown, even in the secular world, you can go into any number of areas where somebody has had the conviction to stand up for something that was right and actually came out on top. And I'm saying that many of the churches are scared of what would happen if they stood up for just moral principles. And we're not talking about being ugly. We're talking about just creating an atmosphere where you, where you are going to attract people that believe in Christ and are not converted unless they are converted. I mean, you don't want somebody being baptized just to because he thinks he's going to be saved for getting in, in and out of the water. You want somebody to repent. And when you create that kind of an atmosphere, you'll wind up with a converted people and more influence. Dad, if you if you really convert somebody and, and they, they, they put their trust in God, um, it seems inevitable changes, change will happen. Right. I mean, they, you're not going to have to tell them. They're, they're going to be looking. They're going to be looking how to change their life because they put their trust in a different way of doing things. Right. I think that's good that we talked about forcing things on people. If a person is really converted, it doesn't matter what they may be wrong on. Over a period of time, they will become more and more Christ-like because they, they'll just simply want to go in that direction. Anybody else with any comments? Well, i got a question for you. What, what do you see as the, the basic elements of conversion? I mean, I mean, if you wanted to describe that to somebody, what would you, how would you do that? Well, we all, my approach, I came from a, a skeptic background. And uh, I had a mother who believed, and then the, a stepfather who was a very educated unbeliever. And I always found Christianity emotionally attractive, you know, but there was doubt as to whether or not it was so. I could not have been converted without empirical evidence that I could examine with my mind. And I, and I heard sermon after sermon that may have sounded good. But it wasn't until I got into the evidences for why we believe the Bible's inspired. And I think that um, there are people out there brought up in a, a Christian environment who maybe haven't heard the evidence, and they will buy in uh, to a certain degree. But I'm not sure that you, I don't believe that you go all the way until you're convinced in your mind. Uh, that it's easy to say you believe something, but... Uh, whether or not you believe it is something else. And I don't believe your mind will buy into something unless you're, you're really convinced it's so. Well, what, what I was asking is a lot of times we hear the word repentance used to talk about conversion. And, and repentance carries with it, a, I guess, a, a picture in my mind at least of being sorry. But I think one of the things that's, that's key to conversion is a submission of one's will to God's will. Yeah, change of mind. And a lot of times you see with these lukewarm Christians, when we, when we call them lukewarm Christians, they may be sorry that they did some things in the past, but they really haven't submitted their will to God's will. Yeah. And I think I think sometimes clearing that up, at least for me, it, it, to make that distinction, it, it makes it clear what's required <coughs> of me a lot more when I say I'm going to submit my will to God's will, even though I want to do some things and even though, I mean, whatever God says here, then even if I don't like it or I don't agree with it or whatever, it means that I'm going to have to submit to it. Yeah. Accepting him as master, not just right. savior. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of emphasis, as she said, on Jesus as Savior, and everybody wants to go to heaven, you know, just like, you know, everybody like a lot of things. But uh, 
there's a there's a difference between just as savior or as as uh, as master and the one that's right. Any other observations or comments? Okay, let's call it for tonight then.